Father, Father, um, first I want to recognize your sovereignty, your providence, your right to command and order all things. And I recognize that this morning there's a slight juxtaposition to our church family mourning Pastor Ken, and now suddenly coming to talk about civil authority. (laughs) But you have led us to this point. (laughs) You have ordered these things, and so I pray (laughs) that you continue to follow through and teach us through it. Get us a better and greater understanding of who you are. Allow us to see that sovereignty, (laughs) that order that all happens under your will. And so be with us this morning as we turn our attention to this passage that at first glance seems out of place, but use it to transform our hearts, to renew our minds, to set set our gaze upon you. I thank you for who you are and that you are a God that is sovereign and controls all things so that whatever happens up here right now your purposes will still go forth, and all things will turn out for good for those who love you. Father, we thank you for these things, and I pray. Well, when it comes to obedience, it is often easy to obey something that which we agree with. Right? Often we can tell whether something is going to be something that I obey, better whether I agree with it or don't agree with it. For instance, I bet if I told my son Augustine, go clean your room, he's probably not going to do that. I know there's going to be a struggle there to get him to obey that command. However, I'm willing to bet that if I told him, Augustine, at dinner, I don't want you to eat that much broccoli because I want you to save room for cake. He's going to gladly obey that. Because oftentimes obedience is something that is easy for us to do when we agree with the command. Well, today's passage, at least for me, is a passage in which there's a simple command. It's really not a tough passage to understand, to wrap our heads around. And there's a simple command. But simplicity does not equal easy. (laughs) And even for, I think, the mature Christian, when we read a passage like we're going to read that's similar to the first Peter passage that Preston read earlier, our minds are going to quickly go to, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Or should I not do this instead? Because there's something I know in me, and I will confess this now, that there's a lot of things that I would not like to obey when it comes to civil authorities. And so I want to kind of curb our expectations this morning because there is a a sense where Paul is going to bring up the idea of civil government. And everything in me wants to talk about, okay, but what are the things that we shouldn't obey from civil government? And there's something in me that wants to maybe go on political rants but that's not what this should be about. 
Rather, I want to focus in on what is it that Paul is trying to teach us here. He's not trying to teach us and answer every question about whether we should obey this law or that law or this people or this person. He's not trying to make the distinction between a good government and evil government. Rather, he gives us a simple command <laughs> that we are to obey with some reasons behind it. And so curb your expectations because this isn't going to be a political rant. Rather, hopefully, a look at what God's word tells us to be in general doing as those who are transformed by the gospel. So with that, let's read our passage today in Romans chapter 13. Paul continues his letter to the Romans, chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, if you've been following along, at the surface, Romans 13 seems to almost come out of nowhere. God has just presented, Paul and through God, God through Paul has presented this uh, treatise on what the gospel is. And it's shifted focus in chapter 12 into, therefore, since the gospel is true, how should we then live? And he just finished the section talking about what the marks of the Christian is. And suddenly he shifts, oh yeah, by the way, obey your civil government. And this seems out of place, so much so that there are many scholars and commentators out there who have gone to the point where they believe that maybe this passage isn't actually written by Paul that somehow maybe someone stuck it in later, or Paul simply uh, copy and pasted some other saying that was out there and threw it in there, and it got stuck in this, this spot because it appears to not really go with the flow of what's going on. But I want to take a minute at the top of this to show us why Romans 13 is probably here, and that it really does fit with what Paul has been talking about all along. <clears throat> And so I have three reasons why Romans 13 belongs. The first one is because of the mercies of God. 
Romans 1 through 11 has given us what the gospel is. We are saved by faith through Jesus Christ, not of our own works, but because the gospel is the power into salvation. And so if all those things are true, it is only gospel people who understand the truth of who God is, what our position is before him, and that he is our Lord and God, that we can even really begin to rightly understand and even obey the command of Romans 13, verse 1. So think about all the mercies of God that Paul has talked about in Romans 1 through 11. Now, Pastor Justin had a sermon on this, and so I basically stole this from him. But he's talked about justification by faith, Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the resurrection life, Romans 15, 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Romans 1 through 11 has taught us about eternal security. Where is our ultimate place? Our ultimate place is with Christ Jesus. Romans 8 1, therefore now no combination for those who are in Christ Jesus. It has taught us about election, that we're grafted into God's tree, that we have peace with God, that we're released from the law of God, and that all things work together for good for those who love him. And so based on these things, we are poised to be in a position of the only ones who can truly obey and follow Romans 13. Secondly, Romans 13 is an application of the gospel truths. Romans 12, 1 through 2 tells us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, there's that again, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this is the basis for Romans 13. How we then, as Christians who are gospel people, presenting our life as living sacrifices, not conforming to the world, but being transformed and renewed in mind, what is one way we do that? We obey the civil authorities. A third reason is, comes from chapter 12, verse 19, which we saw last week, which says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So in other words, Paul brings up the idea that we are not to avenge vengeance is his. So the question naturally becomes, well then, what about the people around us who do evil to us, who harm us? How is that taken care of? If we can't rise up and avenge ourselves, who will then? Well, that leads Paul to speak of Romans 13. So today, we have a very simple command There are two imperatives in this passage. The first imperative is what the meat of it is about. 
And that is in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is a simple command and imperative, but like I said at the top, this is not easy. Now, this imperative is argued by Paul, and it starts in verse 1 and is encompassed and closed, bookended, by verse 5. Look down at verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection. So Paul's argument here is, as gospel people, as people who are not avengers, as people who know and understand God, we are to subject ourselves to government. So Paul, the rest of this, is Paul is going to give an argument for why that is the case, why we should obey these authorities that are not God themselves. So how does Paul do this? So the imperative, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Well, first he says, there's no authority except from God. Look at verse 1 again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God. In other words, what is he teaching here? Even the authorities that we might not like, that might be uh, occupied by evil men, are there because their authority stems from God. And he closes this off in the next part of the verse, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is the sovereignty of God. Even the government we might not like, even when we have dictators, God is sovereign over those dictators. Now, Paul is not writing this in a place where the government is friendly to him. So he's not writing this in ignorance. He's writing this having suffered under the civil authorities already. And, in fact, his mission is to go to Rome. And he doesn't get to Rome in the way he wants. He gets to Rome through prison. And so Paul is very much aware of what civil government can and will and has done. But yet he says, obey those authorities. There's an early letter written to a church that was written around uh, about mid-2nd century, so like 150 A.D. Um, And so this is about a 2,000-year letter, and it's concerning a man named Polycarp, who was martyred uh, because of the Roman government. And I want to show, I want to read part of this letter to start off with because it shows that the Christians then, just like we should today, were ready and willing to obey the civil government despite who was in power at the moment. Because they understood what Paul was teaching, they understood what Peter was teaching. So this letter is called the Encyclical Epistle of the Church at Smyrna. This is before they had publishers that could edit names. And it starts like this. The church of God which sojourns in Smyrna, to the church of God sojourning in Philomelium, and to all the congregations of the holy and Catholic church in every place, mercy, peace, and love from God the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ be multiplied. We have written to you, brethren, as to what relates to the martyrs, and especially to the blessed Polycarp, who put an end to the persecution, having, as it were, a seal upon it, 
by his martyrdom. For almost all the events that happened previously to this one took place that the Lord might show us from above a martyrdom becoming the gospel. For he waited to be delivered up, even as the Lord had done, that we might also become his followers, while we look not merely at what concerns ourselves, but have regard also to our neighbors. For it is the part of a true and well-founded love, not only to wish one's self to be saved, but also all the brethren. It continues. All the martyrs, martyrdoms then were blessed and noble, which took place, listen to this, which took place according to the will of God. For it becomes us who profess greater piety than others to ascribe the authority over all things to God. And truly, who can fail to admire their nobleness of mind and their patience with a love towards their Lord which they displayed? Who, when they were so torn with scourges that the frame of their bodies, even to the very inward veins and arteries, was laid open, still patiently endured, while even those that stood by pitied and bewailed them. But they reached such a pitch of magnanimity that no, not one of them let a sigh or a groan escape them, thus proving to us all that those holy martyrs of Christ, at the very time when they suffered such torments, were absent from body, or rather, the Lord then stood by them and communed with them. And looking to the grace of Christ, they despised all the torments of this world, redeeming themselves from eternal punishment by the suffering of a single hour. For this reason, the fire of the savage executioners appeared cool to them, for they kept before their view escape from that fire, which is eternal and never shall be quenched, and look forward with the eyes of their heart to those good things which are laid up for such as endure, things which ear hath not heard, nor eye seen, neither have entered into the heart of man, but were revealed by the Lord to them, inasmuch as they were no longer men, but had already become angels. It feels like we are in a different place, that we can divorce ourselves from this command of obey civil authority because, well, our government is different. We can think of it differently. <laughs> but the people of this time, of Paul's age, of Polycarp's age, had a very wicked government, and yet they were willing to ascribe the will of God to it. They were willing to allow God to be in control and recognize that God was still in control of the civil authorities. And so... I wish I could sit here and read this whole letter to you, but that would be the whole time. But it's a great letter that shows how much they um, trusted and relied on the sovereignty of God to order all things in their lives, even when their very own people in their church were being taken and murdered by the Roman government. The next thing Paul says... (laughs) that after he talks about authority is instituted by God. He gives us the second reason, which is that resisting authorities is resisting God. Look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. In other words, here's compounded again. Paul is saying these authorities in place that you want to resist is really resisting God because God has ordained it to be so. 
And he gives us a consequence in this, which should stop us for a minute, because not only is it resisting God, but it goes on to say in the second half of, chapter, of verse 2, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, there's a caveat here. I think primarily what Paul means by judgment here is judgment from the civil authorities, right? which is reasonable and understandable. If I were to disobey a civil government, there's going to be some judgment, some fine, some prison time, something going on along with that. However, I think there's still a secondary meaning behind that, and that is if I'm resisting God, <laughs> there's an eternal ramification for that. And so isn't it better to understand that God is in control and we are to obey what he has called us to obey? Again, Paul is no stranger to an oppressive government. In fact, Rome is no stranger to oppressive government. It seems that when Paul wrote the letter to Romans, it was shortly after a time where Jewish Christians were able to finally come back to Rome. In a A.D. 49, the emperor Claudius um, had evicted all the Jewish Christians out of Rome because of something that he wrote as a Crestus event, which looks awfully a lot like Christ. And so a lot of people believe that something to do with the Jews and the Christians got in some tough that uh, Paul or that uh, Emperor Claudius kicked out all the Jews. And so what seems to have happened is that at Pentecost... We have a lot of Jews visiting Jerusalem from Rome, and they hear the gospel, go back to Rome, start the church, and very soon are expelled from Rome. And so Rome is no stranger to an evil government. And Paul goes on to explain why we are to obey these authorities. The third thing he says, rulers are God's tools to restrain evil. Look at verse 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So Paul says, why do we obey these rulers? Why do we obey these civil authorities? Because God has instituted them, he has ordained them to be tools to restrain evil. Now I know, again, going to the top, immediately you want to say, ah, but they themselves are evil sometimes. Yes, but God has ordained it so. Notice what Paul calls the civil government. And this is a hard one to swallow. He calls them first servants, avengers, and ministers. Look at verse 2 and verse 4. Verse 2. Excuse me, not verse 2. Um, verse 4, he says, for, God, for he, the civil authority, is God's servant. So Paul has called the, ser- called the government servants. In the second half of verse 4, he says, For he is the servant of God. These are God's tools to do what he needs. And so we are not to resist them. We are not to um, disobey them. Secondly, he calls them 
This word for servant, by the way, is the word we get for deacon. It's the same word. And so there are God's ways to serve his people, to serve all humanity in a common grace way. Secondly, he calls them avengers. Why does he use this word? Because we talked about in verse 19 of chapter 12, if we're not to do the avenging, who is? Well, Paul says, God has instituted civil government for this. He's the one who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection to him. Thirdly, he calls them ministers. Now, this isn't like ministers in the way you might call uh, Pastor Landon and Justin, but ministers in the way that perhaps the British government would call their uh, people in charge of government. They're ministers whose job is to do these very things. So look at verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. What very thing are they attending to? Attending to bearing the sword. They're a curb to evil. In other words, God is saying the world could be even more evil than it is, but I have instituted government to be that curb. Lastly, he says, we are to obey government because of the sake of conscience. Since we are gospel people, since we understand God is in control, it behooves our conscience to obey. It is moral, in other words, to obey our civil government. It is part is what we are as Christians, as um, gospel people, to be doing. We don't have a let go, a, a, a long leash to disobey whoever we want because we say, oh, we're Christians, we can do how we please. Rather, we are to obey the institutions of God. And so this conscience spurs us on to pay taxes. And this leads us to our second imperative that we see. And the second imperative is sort of like the application. Look at verse 7. Pay to all what is owed. Paul is saying, therefore, if we are to be like these gospel people who submit ourselves to the government, here's how we do it. What are some ways we can do it? Now, again, this is not going to answer and fix every single question we have about when or what should we obey our government, right? Is it really that bad for me to go 33 miles an hour in a 30-mile-hour speed zone? However, God is giving, Paul is going to give us some principles here on what it looks like to obey our government. And the first principle, or the principle really, is that what, God, what they are owed, you pay to them. So first he says, taxes to whom taxes are owed. This word owe here carries with it the idea of justice, giving a person what is due them. Since we are Christians, our lives, our demeanor should be one that reflects that gospel truth. And so, since God has instituted the government, we pay to them what is owed. And part of what the government does is take taxes. Jesus himself said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Secondly, he says, pay revenue to whom revenue is owed. This is sort of like... uh, a tax on levied goods. So it's another type of tax, uh, almost like a sales tax or a toll. Um, so again, this is all 
part of our job is to support the government in some way as far as it is good. Thirdly, he says, we are to respect those who deserve respect. And we are to honor those who are to be honored. So Christians cannot just assume that their obligations are fulfilled if they take care of material things like paying taxes and tithes. They must also show honor to other people. We must be a people of respect and honor despite of what comes our way, despite what the civil government does. I want to close with the rest of the story of Polycarp. Because Polycarp, I think, illustrates how a Christian is to obey these things, showing respect and honor, while still obeying God. Sometimes there's a fine line between obedience to God and obedience to civil government. What does that look like? I think Polycarp gives us an example. So here's the story of Polycarp. It comes from the same letter. The Romans were having some games. And in these games, they had some wild animals, and they were capturing Christians, and they were having them fight these wild animals to the death. And one of these men was named Germanicus, and he fought so heroically, he fought so well, that it upset the uh, people in the stadium watching. And it upset them so much, when they saw how heroic he was, how honorable he was, um, allowing himself to be killed by these ferocious wild animals, that they said, away with the atheists, let Polycarp be sought out. Now I need to explain something here. Why are the Roman government saying away with the atheists? Well, you see, for Rome, the true gods were that of the Roman pantheon. They had a set of gods that you were to worship and bow down to. In fact, all of Rome needed to do that. And if you didn't uh, accept this god, then you were outside of what was good to be part of the silver government, and so you were persecuted. So this is why Christians were persecuted, because to the Roman government, they were atheists. This will come in handy later. And so they say away with the atheists, meaning Christians, and they knew of Polycarp, who was uh, an elder of the church at Smyrna. And he said, let Polycarp be sought out. So the letter continues and shows the capture of Polycarp. Now I want to point out that in the letter they say... uh, what we should be doing is not going out of our way to be martyred, but rather allow the will of God to have things unfold. And so it really upholds this will of God aspect of things. But Polycarp is one who displays this and where he is going to allow the will of God to happen. And so he doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't begin to rail against the government. Rather, he stays in place and does what he does and preaches the gospel but his friends convince him to leave the city of Smyrna after a while. So he goes out into the country, and he has a dream. And the dream he has is of his pillow on fire. And so when he wakes up, he exclaims, I must be burnt alive. And he realizes that his time has come to an end, and he will be martyred by the Roman government. So eventually the Roman authorities come and track him down. And when they arrive at the house he's in, the people with Polycarp try to push him to escape. But he says, no, the will of God needs to be done. 
and the Roman authorities enter the house, and they're so amazed by the steadfastness, the confidence, and the demeanor of Polycarp that it stops them short. And in fact, Polycarp shows them respect and honor and offers them food and drink and makes sure they're well-nourished. And they're so taken aback, and they're so marveled at this man, Polycarp, that when Polycarp asks that if he could have just an hour before they arrest him to pray, they allow him to do so. And so Polycarp goes and prays, and he doesn't pray for one hour, but he prays for two hours. And the men, because again of how amazed they are, they allow him to do this because of his confidence and kindness they've shown him. And after the two hours of hearing him pray and wondering about why they have come to pull this man away and set him to death, they begin to lament that they even have to arrest such a man. So they eventually take him, put him in a wagon or chariot, and because they feel so bad with him, about him, they attempt to persuade him to relent and just say, look, all you have to say is Caesar is Lord, and we can let you go, and you'll be fine. You'll be off to do what you need. But Polycarp was resolute and refused to say such a thing. So this next part I would like to read from the letter because it's going to give a better picture than I could uh, summarize to you. But eventually Polycarp enters the stadium. Think of the stadium as like a small version of the Colosseum in Smyrna. And it says this, Now as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show thyself a man, O Polycarp. No one saw it was that no one saw who it was that spoke to him, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, "Have respect in thy old age," and other similar things according to their customer such as, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. Remember, the atheists to the Romans are Christians. Listen to this. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance and all the multitude of the wicked heathen men in the stadium, waving his hand towards them, with groans, he looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheists. Well, this upset the proconsul, and they again asked him to swear and reproach Christ and say, Caesar is Lord. But Polycarp responds with, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me an injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And it goes on when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since thou art vainly urgent, and thou sayest, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and pretendest not to know who I am, who I am or what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day, and thou shalt hear them. The proconsul replied, Persuade the people. But Polycarp said, 
To thee I have thought it right to offer my account of my faith, for we are taught to give all due honor, which entails no injury upon ourselves, to the powers and authorities which are ordained of God. So then Polycarp is soon martyred, where he's, like his dream, burned on a pillar. And so the letter closes lamenting about Polycarp's death, but also praising his steadfastness and understanding that God is in control and that the will of God has been done and God has ordained all things for his purposes. So it closes with this. This, then, is the account of the blessed Polycarp, who being the twelfth that was martyred in Smyrna, yet occupies a place of his own in the memory of all men, insomuch that he is everywhere spoken of by the heathen themselves. He was not merely an illustrious teacher, but also a preeminent martyr, whose martyrdom all desired to imitate, as having been altogether consistent with the gospel of Christ. For having through patience overcome the unjust governor and thus acquired the crown of immortality, he now with the apostles and all the righteous in heaven rejoicing glorifies God, even the Father, and blesses our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, the governor of our bodies, and the shepherd of the Catholic Church throughout the world. And so Polycarp, the church at Smyrna understood that God was in control. And so submit to government they did when it was appropriate. Hopefully that teaches a little bit about when and how we should submit to government. I think more than likely we should seek to obey rather than disobey because God is in control of the outcome. And like the church and like Polycarp, we can recognize that the true governor of our bodies is God in heaven. And that whatever government can do to us here and now is nothing compared to the eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you, out of anything here today, drill into us your sovereignty your lordship over all things. I pray that when government regimes changes, when different elected officials become in office, that it doesn't tip over our world, that we can be confident and sure that you are in control of those things. And we can recognize that there are some institutions that we might not like that are still instituted by you. And so we should seek to be kind, to be honorable, to be respectful to those who are in those positions, regardless of who they really are. Help our lives to reflect that so that we can be gospel people by both our words and our actions and the way we submit and obey to things that have been placed in authority over us. Lord, this is hard, but give us the strength and power to do so. Father, I pray that we are subject to our governor authorities in keeping with what you have given us. I pray in Son Jesus' name. Amen.